If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Hey everyone, welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake. I am your host, Reza Aslan. And I am your co-host, Rain Wilson. You know, Rain, I've known you for a very, very long time, but I just discovered something that I didn't know about you, which is... Guess you were on TV or something. You had a TV show, is that right? Okay, funny, funny guy. That's funny. <laughs> All right, funny man. Thank you. I played Kirkan the Demon Alchemist on season three of Charmed <laughs> with Shannon Doherty. Okay, so please. No, listen, you know I love you. You know I love The Office. Everybody loves The Office. But, you know, one thing that people, I I don't think what they really understand about The Office is like how many lives it has saved. And I'm not joking, folks. I am not joking Mm. about this. Like sometimes I'll be out to dinner with Rain or whatever. We'll be at a restaurant, like minding our own business, having a nice conversation. And people, you know, recognize him. He's got a very recognizable face. People come up to him. And they're like, oh, my God, uh, Dwight Schrute. And and what? And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, whatever, fans, they're like, let's take a selfie. And then they just break down. And they're like, I need to tell you that The Office saved my life at a time in which everything was going wrong. And I was thinking about, like, I literally heard someone say something along the lines of these words. I was going to kill myself. And then I started watching The Office and I decided yeah. not to. And I'm like, what the fuck? It is really, you know, when I'm halfway through filming The Office and being Dwight with Jello and falling over in his chair and shouting Michael and feuding with Jim, like the last thing I was thinking is like, this show is going to save people's lives, balance their mental health, soothe their anxiety, bring families together and heal people through laughter. That was the last thing I was thinking about. I was like, oh, I'm getting a nice paycheck to look, to act like a, a buffoon. This is fantastic. It's crazy. I mean, like, it's 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 like if you fantasize about something like that, but you don't think it's happening in a sitcom. And yet, I think the thing that you and I really love about TV is that we know from, from personal experience that TV can do that. TV can reframe people's perceptions. It could change the way that they see the world, the way that they see themselves. It could like absolutely, you know, profoundly affect, you know, their very sense of, of identity. TV is the most powerful tool for social change. Yeah. I think ever created. And listen, um, you're on the front lines. Okay, so we can talk about it theoretically. Oh, the law, the office made people laugh and whatnot. But you are an executive producer on the United States of Al, which for people that don't know, is a sitcom about an Afghan translator from the Afghan war who mm-hmm. kind of becomes a, a de facto, you know, refugee because his life is in danger. And he moves in with a mid-American family. And this kind of fish out of water is the framing for the sitcom. That all sounds great. He's Muslim. You're Muslim. There's, you know, this is, uh, this started as just a very nice Chuck Lorre uh, sitcom uh, that would help bring people together, different kind of cultures. That's all fine. All of a sudden, we are yanked out of Afghanistan in a matter of months and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Afghan refugees are fleeing the country, many of whom are coming to the United States. All of a sudden, your sitcom is front page news. What is it like 
what has it been like? Truly, I'm asking because I haven't really caught up with you about it. Like being in the writer's room, making a series of decisions about a show that literally is has become the most relevant show on all of television. Well, I mean, thank you for saying that. And, you know, again, just like your experience with The Office, right? My my goal with television has always been to to introduce Americans to, you know, a protagonist they'd never really met before, you know, to this show is, it's the first network television show with a Muslim protagonist. I'm very, very proud of that. And, and it's CBS. So, you know, the audience is all a bunch of 60 year old white people like living in, in the Midwest. And, and there's no question that my goal from the beginning was to kind of use this show to change the way that people thought. And then now we're in this place where suddenly this show is really the only window that most Americans have anymore of like what the results of our 20-year military misadventure in Afghanistan did to people, you know, and not just to Afghans, but to veterans, to Marines and, 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 yeah. uh, and our military personnel. It's like the news, we knew when we were starting this season that the news was going to move on and that, you know, we were going to talk about Afghanistan for about a long weekend and then we would move on to, you know, Benefer. And so we we took very seriously the responsibility that we had to keep the story of Afghanistan in the news, you know. And and look, we're a, we're a sitcom. We're supposed to be funny and, and irreverent and... Uh, you know, it is 8.30 on a Thursday. So, you know, th there's only so much that you can do. But I think this is the thing that we're getting at right now, which is this belief that you and I have that the sitcom can be this incredibly powerful tool uh, to change the way that, that people think, to change the way that people identify themselves and their neighbors to like change actual policy, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. like I, mm -hmm. I'm very proud to say that the show had a big role in the way that Americans and our American political leaders have thought about the, the sort of sudden influx of Afghan refugees coming into the country, many of whom are settling in neighborhoods, you know, in which they've never met, you know, an Afghan before. And I don't know if our TV show can kind of change, you know, those people just a little bit, make them yeah. a little bit more empathetic. I mean, that's what TV can do. And and that's the topic that we want to talk about. So who are we going to talk to uh, today about this issue? Well, we've got a fantastic- Steve Carell. Oh, man, don't, don't do that. People are going to get excited and then we're going to have to tell them- Steve, welcome to the show. Steve is not We couldn't here. get Steve Carell, but you know who we could get? <laughs> Dr. Dave Kaplan. Oh, well, that's a kind of a big deal. Tell our listeners slash viewers who Dr. Dave Kaplan is. Well, look, you could talk about Dr. Dave Kaplan as just, you know, a legendary television uh, comedy writer and producer. He was the executive producer and writer for Roseanne, The Connors, George Lopez, The Drew Carey Show, Anger Management, ton of those things. This guy's been in TV for a very, very long time. But what makes him really special is he actually has a doctoral degree in psychology with a specialty in media psychology. So not only does he work in TV, but he's like an academic who can actually talk very in very sophisticated terms about what TV is, what TV does, how it can be a force for good and for bad. And he is the perfect guest for this conversation. Part Jerry Seinfeld, part Malcolm McLuhan. Well, there you go. So without further ado, let's bring on our good friend, Dave Kaplan. Dave Kaplan, it's so great to have you on the Metaphysical Milkshake podcast. You are, uh, well, I mean, you qualify as a legend in television. <laughs> that just means you're old. Yeah, thank you for having me, but legend does have a sort of a musty air about it, doesn't it? <laughs> I've been called recently just kind of like you know the character is iconic and your legend it's like i'm not guys i'm not retired yet like there's there's lots of roles in front of me come on dave's gonna yeah. he's got a lot of shows left to create and run and and staff and and pepper with jokes come on it's nice to be on this podcast with two living legends i as a young buck 
just getting started. But yeah, of course, you know. yes. So, Dave, yeah, Ray and I were were you know earlier we were talking about you know we're we're children of the sitcom. Like we grew up with television. Like television was essentially my you know parent. And <laughs> same same holds true for Rain. Uh, what about you? Tell us about your childhood. What what, what was TV's role in your life? <laughs> I find it amazing that you both say that. Because I thought I was the only one. Um, I was literally raised by the television. Um, I, my family life wasn't great um, as a kid. And uh, I didn't have a lot of adult supervision. And so the TV babysat me. And, um, you know, I, was, I watched everything. But I was especially influenced by those 1970s sitcoms, you know, mm. starting with All in the Family to Mary Tyler Moore and MASH and... All of those wonderful CBS Norman Lear shows. And <laughs> I've reflected on this my whole life because I was so, I so retreated into those shows that I became what they told me to become, literally. And I've laughed about it since after an awful lot of therapy. But, um, you know, I watched sitcoms, of course, and then I watched detective shows. And then I was absolutely blown away by the Kung Fu show. Um, oh my God, Dave, we, we are brothers from another mother. This is crazy. <laughs> the Kung Fu TV show changed my life. In fact, I'm writing a book right now on spirituality and Reza can attest to this. And I have a whole chapter on the spirituality of Star Trek and Kung Fu because <laughs> uh -huh. Star Trek is the spiritual journey of humanity, uh, you know, maturing, uniting, and using science to go out into the universe, but they're at peace at home. They've solved all the problems at home. Um, and then Kung Fu is all about the internal spiritual journey. Here's this monk, you know, on this quest in the, in the violent old West speaking. He's like Jesus. I mean, he's literally barefoot walking around the old <laughs> yeah. West, solving people's problems and, and healing them. Um, I, I love that. Well, how did it speak well, to you? Well, I, I was, I was, I was gobsmacked by it. And, um, you know, when you're 12 years old, you're talking about how he was Jesus. He would have had to have been a, a rabbi for me. And he was just so much cooler than a rabbi. So <laughs> an ass kicking um, rabbi, an ass kicking rabbi in the old West, which I might, I might go develop as soon as we're done talking. Um, but, um, no, I want EP I, credit. I, <laughs> I literally, so what did I become in my life when I, when I turned 18 and left the house, I became, um, a private detective from all the cop shows that I watched. Um, I became a martial arts instructor desperate to learn Kung Fu and, and memorize the Tao Te Ching, which I've written about and has become <laughs> one of, one of the many guiding texts of my life. Um, and, and then I only left being a detective because I thought, well, what I really should be doing is writing sitcoms because the voices are in my head. So No, no, no. Oh, slow, slow down a second. <laughs> you said you're 18 and you became a detective. Did you like get a badge out of a Cracker Jack box and, and <laughs> yeah. sit behind like a, a cardboard sign saying Dave Kaplan, P.I.? <laughs> like, what, what, how does this work? Can we slow it down? Here's what actually happened. I was actually I was actually 21 by the time I became an official uh, detective because you had to be that age in California. Um, but what had happened is I went to school uh, as a pre-law guy, and I dropped out about five credits short of my pre-law poli-sci degree because I was working in a law office as a gopher and a clerk. And I looked around at sort of the ashen attorneys and said, wow, this, they don't look good at all. I don't think this is what I want to do anymore. And there was this sort of um, flashy detective that all of the attorneys in the office used. And he had a kind of a checkered sport coat and just a gun peeking out from the sport coat. And I thought, I recognize that from TV. Yeah, yeah, I think that might be the next move. So I convinced him to train me. Because in California, you had to have a certain amount of internship hours to get a license. And, um, and then I started to work when I was about 21. And um, all of the detective agencies loved a long-haired 21-year-old. Because nobody suspected that guy was a detective, right? Nice. So, That's your in. That does yeah. sound like a TV show. Or is that jump, <laughs> 21 Jump Street? Is that I don't know. I don't know. But... Um, 
that's what I was doing because that's what TV taught me to do, you know, and I thought those were the coolest guys. So, you know, of course I would do that. And um, my first job was there's a very famous place in Los Angeles called Philippe's, which is a, a roast beef place. I know Philippe's downtown. Yeah, it's fantastic. And my first job was to go there uh, for two consecutive weeks and eat there every day and wash the cash, watch the cash register to see who was dipping into the register. So I sat there for two weeks eating corned beef in different disguises thinking, well, I've really got it made. I think I've made it here. <laughs> and um, it's not quite Beretta, but it's pretty damn close. So <laughs> who was doing it? Uh, the employees. There were a couple of cashiers that were dipping and, uh, and I nabbed them. And there was, were you like, wow. uh, it was Carla and Wanda or were you able to like, you fingered them? I, I fingered them. Um, there was, there I mean, was so no to speak. Please don't cancel us for saying that. Yeah, that means something else today <laughs> than it did back then. Um, you I can't, think. you can't say that anymore. That's not good. Um, but no, there was no, there was no chase where I brought them down and cuffed them or anything. But I uh, wrote a very scathing report, and uh, and uh, that took them down. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness, or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Well, BetterHelp will assess your needs and will match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. This is not a crisis line, folks. It is not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. That's right. The service is available to clients worldwide. You can log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counselor and you're going to get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in those uncomfortable waiting rooms yeah. like you do with, you know, traditional therapy. The magazines from 2014. And BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. Also, it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling. And there's even financial aid available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit betterhelp.com milkshake. That's better H-E-L-P. And join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp. They're now recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Don't forget the special offer just for Metaphysical Milkshake listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash milkshake. Rain, I assume you finished all of your holiday shopping already, um, obviously. Sure. Yeah, I did, <laughs> I did all of that shopping. Have you bought one gift yet? Have you bought one holiday gift yet? Well, if anyone in my family wants a signed Dwight t-shirt or headshot, then I'm covered. Look, don't panic. It's not too late. I've got a secret source for incredible original gifts, and it's Uncommon Goods. UncommonGoods.com has the absolute best gifts for everyone in your life. We're talking moms, dads, teens, in-laws, besties, your one and only. And it's not stuff you can just find anywhere. Uncommon Goods has unique and creative gifts, often handmade by independent artists and makers. So you can skip the gifts that scream, last minute, and find something truly original at UncommonGoods.com. Well, you know, you know my favorite thing from the site already because I've bought it so many times. I've told metaphysical movies. Oh, the, mic the microphone already. thing. Yeah, it's this amazing yeah. karaoke microphone. It plugs in. You use it with your iPhone. It's fantastic. You can basically like put your voice onto any of your favorite songs. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade or made in the US. They have the most meaningful, out of the ordinary gifts anywhere. And now with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back a dollar to a nonprofit partner of your choice. And they have donated more than 2.5 million to date. So to get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash milkshake. That's uncommongoods.com slash milkshake, and you'll get 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. So see, this is fantastic because, again, this is exactly you know, the situation that Rain and I found ourselves in as children, you said it perfectly. You said, TV, like, told me how to be, <laughs> right? That you you kind of molded your identity, your personality, uh, by what TV told you was real life, which 
I, I find that to be so fascinating because I had that very same experience. Rain had a very similar experience. Can yeah. you dig into that a, a little bit for us? Like what was what was TB telling you about what it meant to be Dave Kaplan? You know, I understand it now uh, after it, it took me, as I said, some therapy and getting a PhD in exactly this to understand it. So it's taken me a while. But um, at the moment, my circumstance was that I didn't have any male role models. So um, TV is our teacher. And I say that, you know, in a very sober way. And we will get into that, I think, during the course of the podcast about, you know, how it really teaches us. But I needed somebody to tell me what it's like to be a man when you grow up. And not having Mm -hmm. a father around at the time, I was lacking that. So it was Jim Rockford was your dad? Jim Rockford was uh, at least an uncle, I would say. And Kwai Chang Kane. Mm-hmm. And Kwai Chang Kane was uh, my brother from another mother. And, and it's funny that you say that, but I learned, I took different pieces of masculinity from all of those characters, right? So uh, tough, being tough, uh, tough but fair as a detective and being introspective as a, uh, uh, a Shaolin monk and a Taoist scholar was kind of an important piece. And um, going through life with a sense of humor, like um, Hawkeye Pierce taught me. Uh, and so it was a mosaic of male role models that filled in for the ones that I didn't have. And I cobbled together an identity, at least for my 20s, uh, you know, to get me through that part of my life until there was some other kinds of understanding. But um, yeah, we have to learn from those around us uh, how to behave and what to be. And that can be parents or that can be cohorts or by the way, it can be TV. That That's absolutely incredible. I swear, Dave, um, television raised me. I wouldn't say it was the male role model that I needed, but I knew from an early age that I wanted to be a clown. I really did. Like, you know, and singing in the rain, Donald O'Connor's like, make them laugh, make them laugh. I responded to that. And 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 my way forward were the great TV comedians of those sitcoms from the 70s. You know, it's Radar O'Reilly on MASH and Bill Daly on the Bob Newhart show and uh, Reverend Jim Ignatowski from Taxi and uh, Lenny and Squiggy from Laverne and Shirley. Um I got to work recently with Michael McKean, who played uh, Lenny, and he's yeah, he's a brilliant, great. brilliant actor. We, we've and, had him on shows. I love it. Yeah, he's terrific. And and he he was like, I, I never get nervous around actors. I'll meet like Brad Pitt in the bathroom at the Golden Globes. I'm like, hey, and he's like, hey, and you know, I, whatever, you know, it's Brad Pitt, but. Uh, Lenny, well, Lenny was in the, in the flesh. It was unbelievable. I even had the Lenny and Squiggy album. Did you know that they recorded an album? Of songs? Yes. But these characters showed me the way forward. They brought me so much delight. And um, my family uh, was very unhappy together, but we would crowd around the television because that's what American families pretending to be normal did. And um, I, I wanted out of that family uh, unit so bad. And, and it was those clowns that showed me the way, like, look, you can, you can make people laugh and play these amazing characters. And th- those are really, even though I went to theater school and did a bunch of theater and played a bunch of different roles, like, that's what I want. And so look at me. I, I was Dwight Schrute on The Office. is unbelievable. I went from watching Bill Daly to playing Dwight Schrute. It's un- an incredible uh, path forward. And we have a lot more to get to on how television both raised us and changed us mm-hmm. individually and collectively. And we'll get there. But Reza, I know, I know that you wouldn't be who you are today without American television. No way. As a little refugee boy from Iran in the eighties and nineties right. in, uh, in Oklahoma. First of all, can I say, I love how we're taking turns telling our TV testimonies. Uh, both similar and and different you know yeah we came to the US you know from Iran and um, I didn't speak any English Uh, we were kind of in a a one room motel and and my sister and I weren't allowed outside you know during the daylight hours because my parents had told the management that they were the only ones in the room and so during the day we just sat on the bed and watched TV and look, they had TV in Iran. It's just it was it was shit. <laughs> it was like three <laughs> channels and mostly news, you know. 
And I'd never seen anything like this before. And first and foremost, it taught me English. And that's very real. Like, I mean, I sat in front of that TV and I would say, you know, three to six months, I was pretty much fluent in English. You know, I spoke TV English. I still do kind of speak TV English. I can English. picture you at age five going, what you talking about, Willis? <laughs> what you talking about, what Willis? What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> what you talking about, Willis? What you talking about, Willis? It did kind of give me, you know, a, a kind of a weird sense about how uh, America worked. Like, uh, for instance, I, I've shared this before. Uh, I watched a lot of Chips and it, it's I, like it scared the shit out of me about the highway system because I was like, why, why are cars suddenly like leaping in the air all the time? Why are there like what the fuck is happening in America's highway system? You do have a certain, you have a little bit of Eric Estrada. <laughs> well, thank you. I listen, I will take that, um, but. In a very real way, you know, this was the early 80s. What, you know, was in the middle of the Iran hostage crisis. It was like not a very good time, you know, to be like Iranian or Muslim in America, as I like to joke, you know, as opposed to now when it's fantastic. Um, and, uh, you know, I think what TV did watching, you know, the Jeffersons and Good Times, um, you know, all these shows, it kind of, it taught me what America, what America was going through, you know, like in, in, in sort of the most basic sense, it made me realize that I wasn't the problem. America was the problem, right? <laughs> like this country is dealing with some shit and I just happened to be a part of it. And even at like seven, eight, I kind of, you know, understood that a little bit. Um, and it really sort of basically helped me become American. Uh, you know, and we talk about like, what yeah. does TV teach us? And at least back then, and certainly when it comes to the sitcom, you know, going all the way back to the 1950s, what TV, quote unquote, taught us was what America means. Now, the obvious question that Dave is, was that bullshit? Like, is that like, is that part of the problem that, you know, TV gave us this sense of who we're supposed to be? You being a man, me being, you know, an American uh, Right. Rain being a clown that once we kind of, you know, went into the world, realized, oh, that's not what the world is like at all. Right. Like, right. I was I was lied to. Well, <laughs> that's the big question. OK, because it's that's a tightrope act. And there's there's sort of a danger on each side of that. On the one hand, what it did do is something that we're in danger of losing today which is it gave us shared communal space, mm. oh, yeah. okay? So what's happened with our, our, our technologies, our TV technologies, as well as you know, our podcast technologies and our gaming technologies, but really let's talk about TV for a second. It gave everybody exactly what they want in a specific niche. And what it did is it diminished shared communal space. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that everybody have the same idea about social stuff, about what the country is, as an example? Mm -hmm why it's dangerous and why it's important. Why it's important um, is that, I, you know, like guys like Harari and people like that have done a much better job explaining this than I'm going to do. But the thumbnail sketch from evolutionary psychology is that once we got beyond our band of 100 to 150 roaming uh, humanoids, um, where I could look at you and I could look at you and I knew exactly if rain was not uh, marching in step with the rest of the band and he was a danger because mm -hmm. he was going, Hey, bison over here, whatever it was, it was, we could, we could get rid of him. Mm -hmm. Right. We could manage that 150 people going in the same direction. So what happens when you want to have a civilization that exceeds that? And you can't really keep an eye on everybody. You have to have a shared idea of what a country is. Now it can be bullshit, Right. <laughs> but it has to be shared for everybody to coexist. Otherwise, it's anarchy. And so uh, there are, you know, very reputable biologists and evolutionary scientists that believe that's why our brain's as big as it is. That all that all that prefrontal cortex stuff that was added on after the uh, after the really necessary parts. That's the story part. And 
it's ridiculous that it's this big. We can't lift our head for months after we're born. That's a real disadvantage <laughs> for every other mammal on the planet. It makes no sense at all. Um, but the reason it's so big is because we need the abstract story to say, well, here's what America is. So we all go in more or less the same direction and can have a society. Now, TV played into that in a really important way. Um, TV helped us know in the moment of schmaltz at the end of some of those sitcoms or, um, you know, when uh, Archie Bunker and, uh, and, and uh, Jefferson were interacting, it gave us clues as to what the message, the shared communal space was in those days because there was three networks or four networks if you go a little further down. And that was an important thing, right? We all remember the term water cooler talk. Yeah. Well, you didn't get, you didn't gather around the water cooler to agree. You gathered around the water cooler to discuss. And we don't have those advantages anymore. Now, the other side of that is that, as you were saying, where I said the stories that we all came away with about what our society is was really fucked up in a lot of ways. Yeah. It had terrible ideas. I, I learned terrible things about masculinity and what, <laughs> and what it meant is that I had to unlearn down the line, right? Mm -hmm. And I learned uh, terrible things about, you know, uh, how you treat people you don't agree with, as an example, more to the point. Um, so that story that we learn in a shared communal space, theoretically, that has to evolve as we get a little smarter. Um, but the question is, do we have those shared communal spaces anymore? Or is everybody doing their own thing? And what does that mean for society? So are you saying that the shared communal space used to be the cave and then it was like the village square and then it was like the down the town hall or whatever? And then with the advent of television, you had all of these families in the 1950s all sitting in front of their TV dinners, all these little pods, right? They weren't gathering in the town halls or the bowling alleys or the VFW halls or, or what have you but they were connected by Leave it to Beaver. And Leave it to Beaver was like, oh, this is what America is. And then, and then that transmogrified into counterculture. You know, America is room 222. Uh, and then, oh, America is all in the family and the Jeffersons. And it, the, the shows kind of showed us the way, but made us community. But now, because... I'm not meaning to put words in your mouth, Dave. This is actually igniting a lot of light bulbs mm -hmm. in my head and allowing me to see things in a, in, a, in a richer, more nuanced way that now with the kind of fractured entertainment that we have, everything is so siloed. Like it's, you know, the 14-year-olds are watching Squid Games on Netflix and the, you know, the... Six-year-olds are watching CBS. <laughs> and we have this kind of like all this siloed mini entertainment that, that, that there is no, there is no town square, which then became the TV. We don't have a TV town square anymore. This is one of the problems, right? So, so when you have a, let's even go back in time when, when the sitcoms were in their heyday and you had 275 million Americans, how do you reach 275 million Americans to say, Hey, this is what it means to be an American. Mm -hmm. TV is the only way to do it. You can have a, president say it, I suppose. But um, for reasons, again, we'll talk about TV's way more influential than hearing it out of somebody's mouth. Mm -hmm. And because and we'll, we'll do a tease, there's a, a, a backdoor to the human mind in which story does something very unique to people that nothing else does. Mm. And so the stories we grew up in were way more influential than other kinds of leaders telling us what America was. So, and again, the problem there is that it's kind of a lagging indicator. You know, um, MASH in the, in the 70s was supposed to be talking about the Vietnam War in the 50s and early 60s. You know, we, McLuhan, you know, one of the earliest like media uh, psychology guy was talking about it takes 20 years for the society to grapple with where we should be going and present it as a TV show. Now, I believe that that time frame has shrunk and it's a much less lagging indicator. But anyway, yeah, Rain, that's exactly it, man. We, it's hard to have a democracy if everybody, if 330 million people have a different idea about what it is. You know, 
One thing that you don't have to convince Rain and me of is that TV can be a force for good, right? I mean, I think we all completely agree with that. And certainly, more, more especially the sitcom, right? Because it is you know, the most democratizing form of entertainment. It is in some ways the lowest common denominator. It's still to this day the most popular form of uh, entertainment. I mean, I know like, you know, we talk about like all these uh, genre bending, you know, zeitgeist shows like Squid Game or whatever that you see on streamers. And because we talk about it so much, you think that, oh, millions of people must watch this. And no, millions of people do not watch it. But millions of people watch Big Bang Theory. Like millions yeah. of people, you know, watch Young Sheldon and, and these kinds of, uh, of shows. And so there's no question that TV has been a profound force for change, uh, social cultural change. I would argue probably the most powerful force uh, for cultural change. And you just look at, you know, what the Cosby did, Cosby show did for, uh, you know, black Americans, what Will and Grace did for the LGBTQ community, the way it like just swung the pendulum from overwhelming majorities in this country being against gay marriage to overwhelming majorities of Republicans now being for gay marriage. You talk about your show, Roseanne, and, uh, or Fresh Off the Boat, or, you know, George Lopez show. Like, the list goes on and on and on. And you yourself have been, uh, you've been feted and, and rewarded for doing TV that has actually made, you know, significant change. But we can't forget about the bad that TV does as well. I mean, certainly to my community, we brown people, man, we've, we've had it. We've had it rough with television uh, in in the past, you know, from 24 to Homeland to basically like, you know, every every one of these shows. Um, I think about, uh, you know, the way in which police dramas have completely fucked up the way that most Americans, most white Americans uh, think about, you know, their relationship with the police, right? The police are these heroic figures who could never do things like, you know, plant evidence or, or you know, or, or you know, be themselves criminal. Uh, I, I think about, this is a particularly fascinating subject for me, but the, the way in which CSI has completely fucked up our court system yeah. because it's all like bullshit investigation. It's like magical realism investigation that for some reason Americans think is real and so they sit in these courts and they're like, listen, until I see the, the microfibers, you know, removed from, you know, the lint out of the dryer, then I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, believe that this guy's guilty, right? It's like, no, absolutely. I, I had a homicide cop in Boston tell me that it, it was, it's maybe the worst thing that it's happened to criminal justice in 25 years. Yeah. That if you don't have DNA evidence, you can't get a conviction anymore because that's what juries expect because of TV. I mean, we passed, there were, there were laws passed in this country uh, and, and policies with regard to torture that came from arguments made about the show 24. Hey, look, Jack yeah. Bauer tortures people and it always works. Yeah. And you're like, you stupid dumb fuck, <laughs> you know? That's television, and it's having this very real negative impact. The list goes on and on and on and on. But like, in in a in a sort of general sense, to to the larger point that you were you were just making, the very picture that TV paints of the of the collective, right? This is who we are, is controlled at least until quite recently. It's controlled by white male heterosexual, you know, uh, upper middle class uh, people. And so they basically got the rest of us to buy into their idea of what America is. And, yeah. you know, not always for good, right? Yes. And let's not forget, um, since this is the, the section of the podcast where I gnaw off the hand that feeds me, let's, uh, let's, not, <laughs> let's not also forget um, you know, we have five or six, if you want to be generous, big telecoms that have a corporate interest that is selling advertising. And so we have to place a fair amount of blame squarely upon the content creators 
But there's a corporate agenda here too that we cannot ignore. Um, and to your point, Ray, it's really, you know, if you if you look at the problem and then you start to pull back to kind of a satellite view, you get you end up with something in psychology called cultivation theory, and that is that it's more than an influential show. Even today, even today with television theoretically on the decline, it's just watched TV in a time slot that's on the decline. People are still watching tremendous amounts of time-shifted television on, you know, phones and whatever else. There's people still watching three to five hours of television a day, which is mind-boggling, right? But mm -hmm. you put that over a week and over a month or whatever. And what that does in cultivation theory is it becomes melded, it becomes baked into a worldview, into a landscape that presents a bunch of cultural norms that seep in as being just the truth. And so people that watch a lot of crime shows are certain, it's, it's the chip story about uh, having to drive it de defensively because, you know, somebody's cars are going to be flipping over the, over the freeway. Yeah. Pe people that watch a lot of crime shows are fairly certain that the crime rate is five times as high as it actually is. We mm. just, it's a window to the world for us. And we assume that there's this general state where we combine all these shows together. So I watch uh, a lot of Game of Thrones, and I'm I'm convinced that a dragon is going to fly over me <laughs> at any moment in time. Television affects us in a few different ways. One is this sort of collective landscape of norms that we see. And in those norms, um, white people represent a certain thing, and people of color represent a certain thing, and men represent a certain thing. And, and obviously, a lot of that is lazy-ass writing that has to be addressed because people are and characters should be far more complex than that. Politically, it also shows us that we should despise the other side. And that's led us to this kind of incredible toxic partisanship that we have today, which is also threatening our- Tell us, tell us more about that. Like in, in what way does it tell us to despise the other side? This stems a little bit from news, of course. And I have to just, I just have to preface it by saying televised news has been an enormous, enormous culprit in this. For profit, we have driven people to extremes. So there's no profit in saying that we get along. There's profit in calling the other side Hitler. Right. And so it, it just is, you know? And so uh, Matt Tiabi wrote a great book about that too. Um, that's the game. The game is to make it as sensationalist an enemy as you can make it. Because that's where the money is. We talk about that all the time, that outrage equals clicks. So mm -hmm. we have this outrage money machine. You know, money and outrage go hand in hand. More outrage, the more clicks, more clicks, the more banner ads I'm looking at. Yeah. And But let's not forget, too, like before the advent of Fox News, on the local news, oh, yeah. you know, it would be 1059 Right. And Big Bang Theory would be done or whatever show is, is just finishing. And they'd be like, coming up next, could your space heater be a death trap? <laughs> More at 11. Uh, I have a space heater. <laughs> yeah. And that, that wrenching terror that your space heater mm -hmm. is going to be killing you would then drive the little old ladies to watch the local news at 11. So this has yeah. been going on yep. for decades. They just have learned more and more about the, the psychology of mastering uh, this way of manipulating audiences. It has. And a couple of things have happened uh, concurrently that have made this a real tragedy. One is I go back to, there was a really seminal book in media psychology that was written in the mid eighties by a guy named Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Mm -hmm. And he was writing about television. He didn't live to really see the rest of our uh, afflictions, but he was writing about television. What he was saying is, if we don't have sort of a news that's dedicated to fact, right? And we know that at one point, news was a loss leader of a television network. It wasn't expected to make a profit. That mm. was a public service for using the airwaves. Now, of course, it has to make money like the rest of TV. So in this book, Neil Postman was saying, if we make news entertainment, and everything becomes entertainment, even politics and everything else, we're probably doomed because we'll have trivialized everything and we'll start electing game show hosts as 
as presidents. Or reality mm-hmm. TV stars, yeah. So I believe 30 years since then, that has come to pass. We have trivial, everything has become entertainment. The news is entertainment and politics is entertainment mm-hmm. and uh, you, you name it. Um, religion's entertainment to a lot of, you know, on, on TV, I, right? So anyway, so what the news divisions have have driven people to the extremes by vilifying the others. Now, where does scripted TV come into that? Well, again, we come back to some lazy writing, but lazy ass writing makes black and white villains, right? Um, black hat and white hat. And so when you have the, the conservative and you have the liberal, now, most of Hollywood obviously is more to the progressive side of things. But what you, what you model this is what we were talking about before, which was how we learn from the TV. Um, I think, Rain, you were talking about your family gathering around the TV. It's the one thing that you could sort of, you guys could do together. Yeah. And we certainly couldn't have conversations. Yeah. Mm-mm. Right. But you gathered around the TV, right? And, and, what the TV is also doing is is educating, as we've said before. And we, after I finish this point, I want to sort of explain this thing that people don't understand about how TV gets in your brain in a different way. But so what we're learning is that there's good guys and bad guys, and there's the pure of heart, and there's the evil. It's lazy writing. But what we're not learning is that people are complex, and that you might have a view maybe from the conservative camp. I'm not talking about the extremes like the, 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 the crazy conspiracy theorists. There are some people I think that are, might be beyond influence, right, of reason. And on the left, there's those, ex- those people on the extreme that are probably beyond reason as well. Um, but what we're talking about is what I believe is still the majority of the country, which is someplace in the middle, right? Um, but just like news, scripted programming is presenting to people to learn that there is no healthy argument between people that disagree. And that's the tragedy. That helps drive people to the extremes. Mm -hmm. And it helps us vilify each other in a tribal way that we're already programmed to do and that we're being exploited to do, to gather up sides and go to war. Um, But what we're trying to do, when I say we, I'm working with a group called the Center for Entertainment and Civic Health. And what we're all trying to do is use storytelling to present a, a country, that, that landscape of norms where people can disagree, I mean, vociferously, vehemently disagree, but respect each other and say, I'm not going to vilify you and see you as less than a person. I'm going to respect your ability to disagree with me. Now, I'm not talking about capital insurrections, right? You know, <laughs> and that kind of, I'm not talking about racists. I'm talking about the majority of reasonable people. We haven't done that. And what this Center for uh, Entertainment and Civic Health is trying to do is say to writers and producers and studios, let's teach people that there's a country where we can actually have conversation and we can pull back from these extremes that news and, and, and scripted program have forced us to. And we can save the world with TV in the same way that TV has started to destroy it. So, I mean, you, you've got this organization, Center for Entertainment and Civic Health. It's a great idea. Like, what kinds of uh, actions can we take, those of us who are in the entertainment industry, um, to start having TV really be a force for good again? I mean... Yes, there are there are shows that really work. You know, thank you, Rain, for the for the shout out. We you know we try very hard on the United States of Al to present this like middle class white CBS eight thirty, you know, PM on a Thursday audience uh, with someone that they have never seen before, which is like this brown Muslim guy from Afghanistan, you know, who's a refugee. Um, but like more sort of globally, how how do we kind of get the the people who are in this industry who have sort of a voice and power in this industry to begin to think about TV as a force for good again the way that you're you're talking about it well we have to educate them because when they hear that they need to convince anybody of anything or persuade anybody they throw you out of the room they throw you out of the room. Then yeah. it, you know, you know, as somebody making television, it's like the last thing I need is 
a preachy episode or another note from somebody about what I should be writing. Okay. It's like, I'm yeah. already taking, you know, Zantac just to get through the day. Don't burden me <laughs> with your agendas. Right. Um, so we have to educate the people making these shows to say, there is a subtle thing that you can do and it's called modeling. And it is the reason that we all love Kung Fu. And it's because this thing happens when we watch a story, which is that if I try to convince either one of you of my viewpoints that you don't agree with, something happens that's called psychological reactance. You perceive a threat to your psychological independence. I'm trying to take your independence from you and immediately become defensive. What you do is you just model a different behavior hmm. because people go into these parasocial environments. That just means that this extended world of theirs, which is TV, and they become part of the show. This crazy thing happens in a story. When you are absorbed in a story, which is called uh, transportation, there's a name for it. When you're transported by a story, you go into the main character that you're identifying with and you begin to see the world through their eyes. It becomes a different POV. Psychologically, some people say that's rehearsal for different kinds of life. How would I deal with a missile crisis? How would I deal with a kind of loss I haven't experienced? How would I deal with um, you know, uh, a challenge that I've never had in my life? Well, we rehearse these things by going into a character, dropping our own self-structures. We cease to become Reza and Rain and Dave, and we become whoever it is, right? And we see the world through their eyes. And then when we come back out of that, when it's over, if we've truly been transported, we're changed a little bit. We're going to model that person's behavior if it was really compelling to us. And this happens on a psychological level that we're not really aware of. That's the trick. When I said earlier that there was sort of a, a, a backdoor to the human mind, story's the backdoor to the human mind. We're sort of born to understand things in story. It's how we make meaning out of all of the chaos of the world. We put it in story form and we put ourselves as the protagonist. But we want to continue to learn how to do that. So we go into other protagonists. And when we go into that other protagonist, we let ourselves be vulnerable in a way we don't in any other circumstance in life, really. And then we come back out of it and we've had an emotional experience and we're changed. That can be changed for the good. So what we do, hopefully, with the, the Center for Entertainment and Civic Health, and you know, when we explain to people that, hey, just by making very small tweaks, don't diminish the conflict between characters. We don't want you to diminish mm -hmm. it. We want to model healthy disagreement, not even milquetoast disagreement. It can be, again, really aggressive disagreement, but you don't cross the line where you look at somebody as another where you look at somebody as less than human, right? Where you don't see somebody as a deplorable, right? Where you, where you, you don't see somebody as a, um, you know, somebody who only cares about, uh, 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 you know, liberal causes when I'm dying out here without a job, right? You, yeah. you find a way to have complex characters that can be made up of a lot of different things. And when they come against somebody that they vehemently disagree with, they do it in a way that is not what you see on Fox or MSNBC. It's a way of a kind of an adult respect of saying, I am never going to disagree with you, but good luck to you, buddy. Mm -hmm. And that's different than I hate you. Mm -hmm. It's a big, big difference. We get people to figure out how to present a landscape of that, and we change the world. Wow, Dave, that is... Um, I'm in. I'm all in. Amen. I'm all in. This is what Reza and I have tried to do. I've tried to do it at Soul Pancake. He's done it on, you know, dozen shows that he's worked on and many more that Reza's developing. This has been a joy. I mean, Reza and I think we know a lot about uh, TV and the cultural landscape, but you have schooled us in yeah. a great way. <laughs> Very excited um, uh, to have this conversation and to watch where your future work takes you. Well, this has been a pleasure, guys. I love what you're doing here. We need more of this. All right. Before we lose you, Dave, we're going to do something that we like to call lightning round. We're going to ask you a bunch of big questions and, uh, you know, just the first answer that pops into your mind. If you could trade places with anyone in the world, who would it be? God, is it arrogant that I can't think of anybody? 
uh, I really like my life. Um, <laughs> I think that's a great answer. Yeah, that's a great answer. The answer is no. <laughs> yeah, the answer is no. And speaking of Dave Kaplan, what is something that very, very, very few people know about you? I'm a really good interior decorator. What skill do you wish you had? Oh, I wish I could play the piano. Yeah, me too. I have these weird, complex, very real dreams in which I am like a piano, just like a savant, you know? And it all makes perfect sense until I wake up and I'm like, yeah, I don't, I actually don't. I just want to play barrel house blues like Fats Waller. That's it. I'd be, I could die happy. What happens to us after we die? The sound I'm making is nothing because I think that's what happens after we die. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's funny, I'm not concerned about it. I just, I'm really concerned about right now. I'll worry about that when, when I'm dead. Name something a lot of people like, but you can't stand. Uh, dance music, EDM, trance. Uh, God, give me, give me some guitars. I, I gotta have some blues and guitars and rock. What is one book that changed your life? The first book that changed my life was Ball Four by Jim Bouton about what really happens in a baseball locker room because no. it, it made, it made 11 year old Dave a healthy skeptic and cynic. What, uh, TV show past or present? is most like your life? It's Kung Fu still. I, 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 I practice Kung Fu mm. and I uh, like to think of myself as a Taoist. You're a mysterious loner. But I wear shoes. <laughs> so it's a compromise I made. When will everything be okay? Everything will be okay when television fixes it. Um, and as a sub answer, uh, when we decide that it's going to be okay. And then finally, what is your life's big question? How do we make the most of what we're naturally given? I like that. That's a, that's a great one. I, I wrestle with that myself. Um, I think I we all it. do to some degree. Mm-hmm. Or should if we don't. Dave Kaplan, this has been fantastic. Uh, uh, you know, as you can tell, Ray and I could talk about this all day. <laughs> I loved the, the sort of insight and academic rigor that you brought to this conversation. It's really, really fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, guys. I had a great time. Wow, what a great conversation. Um, Amazing. And, you know, I kept jotting down all these shows, and then I have written down on my pad right here, Norman Lear. Norman Lear. Because he was the guy, and he's, by the way, folks, he's still alive. Yes, he's like 99 years old. I'm not kidding you. He's still producing television, by the way. And uh, he changed the landscape of not only television, but American culture through the 70s. I mean, if you're going to point to a handful of people that helped steer our country in the right direction, you know, Jefferson's all in the family. Um, he's he's unbelievable. Where's our next Norman Lear coming from? You know, he, yeah. he felt a kind of an obligation to let television channel culture and vibrate with culture and be in the cultural conversation. And so few do that these days. And it was so hard. Like, I think, you know, we look back now on Norman Lear and we're like, wow, that was great television all in the family. So bold. So what a what a brave show. Okay, transport yourself back to the 70s now and and think about what it took to get that shit on television. I had a I had the good fortune of inter- interviewing uh Norman Lear for uh, a, a, a this like talk show that I that I sometimes do called Rough Draft, which is like conversations with writers and and things like that over cocktails. And you know, we were talking about a little bit of kind of what we were talking about Dave Kaplan w- with, which is that you know TV has been a force for good, but it's also been a force for bad, especially for my community. You know, in the way that we've been represented on on television, and that you know I want to change that. And I asked him. This was years ago. I asked him you know, do you have any advice, you know, for me, a brown Muslim mm. guy trying to get a brown Muslim guy on TV? Like, how, do you have, do you have any advice for me? And he said, the thing about this country, Reza, that you have to understand is that until you can laugh at yourself, we won't accept you as fully American, right? It's not enough to get a brown person on television, you need to get a brown person on television who makes fun of himself. And then, and then our hearts open up to you. And 
obviously, I, you know, I took that advice to heart. I mean, that's a huge part of what, you know, United States of Al is about is, is the, having, you know, the, the courage and the, the openness to, to make fun of the things that, you know, people made fun of me about when I was a kid to just go mm. ahead and do it. Like make fun of that. Yeah, we are, we do funny things. Like we, we, our food smells a little bit weird and our moms are loud and annoying. And, you know, we have these weird things that we do. Let's make fun of ourselves. Um, and it was just such fantastic advice. And I think it really goes to the core of, you know, what we were talking about, about, you know, the power of the sitcom, right? That's fantastic. What great, you would, it's funny because when you set up that story, I was like, well, you need to believe in the good hearts of the American people and present your arguments in a cogent way, or you need to do a story tell so that you're disguising what the message is. It's like, no, nope. you need to be able to laugh at yourself. You gotta laugh at yourself. And then, and, you can't laugh at yourself. Is, we can't take you. We, we can't accept you. We don't trust yeah. you if you can't laugh yeah. at yourself. Well, trust me, Reza, when I say that I laugh at you a lot. <laughs> Most of America laughs at you. <laughs> And um, you're pathetic. That's all. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Thank you very uh, much. <laughs> hey, milkshakers. Uh, as you know, uh, we would love for you to like, rate, follow, review, especially our podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us in so many ways. And uh, leave your life's big question there in your review. We'll track you down. I don't know how they do that exactly. They And if the question is interesting enough, we'll bring you on the show. So we're really excited to have from the great, historical, uh, beautiful city of angels, Los Angeles, California, we've got Amanda Elliott. Amanda, thanks so much for coming on. What's your life's big question? Not that we have any answers, folks. We're just discussing it. What do you think? What's on your mind? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this one. What's my life's biggest question? And uh, I was talking to my best friend earlier today, actually, and she was telling me this story about how she was talking to her coworkers and the conversation shifted over into uh, onto the topic of sauerkraut as it as it does. They were like having a conversation about it. It ended up like they were going to get each other sauerkraut for Christmas. She's telling me this story. And then she said she had this moment where she was like, this has happened before. This has happened before. Well, thanks so much for, for calling, Amanda. We really appreciate it. And uh, this has been uh, fascinating. And um, Hold on. No, I'm fascinated. Keep going. Keep going. I'm really... Okay, okay. okay. At first right. I thought maybe the question was about sauerkraut, which I have a lot to say on that topic, but... So the question is, she felt like she had felt that, had that experience before. And I feel like that happens all the time. You know, that's just like the most recent example that I can think of, but I feel like that happens all the time. And so my question is, what is deja vu? Are we just living in cycles and circles? Have we been here before? When I was a kid, I had deja vu all the time. I mean, all the time. All the time. Like every two or three months, I would just have the most intense. And I would say to my parents, like, I'm having deja vu right now. I've lived this before. All this stuff happened. Um, one time, and this is not a joke, I was about five or six years old. And it was one of the earliest times I remember deja vu. And I was like, I'm having deja vu. And then I was like, right afterwards, I was like, how is your friend Carl doing? And they were like, huh? And I was like, yeah, Carl. And then the phone rings. And it was Carl on the phone. So my parents were really kind of convinced that I was a little psychic. Want to know what even the weirder thing about that story, Amanda? Carl had been dead for 30 years. <laughs> it's true. Here's a fun fact. The, the truth of the matter is that we literally have no idea why deja vu exists. There are a bunch of theories about it. There's like, you know, psychic phenomenon. Uh, there's one theory I read that it's like, you actually, uh, you're recalling a dream. Uh, another theory that I read once, was, which was like, it is, you actually did experience it before. Like, it's a fact. You did experience this thing before, but like, that your memory was sort of lodged, you know, in the in the old files. And so you didn't, you hadn't, you weren't able to access it until you had the same stimuli. The theory, I will tell you, the theory that always made the most sense to me, like, you know, the scientific biological reason for it, not the glitch in the matrix reason for it, which is equally plausible, sure. if you ask me, uh, is, and, I, and I'm going to screw this up, but I had, I had, a, I had a, a, a scientist explain this to me once before, but it was like, okay, so 
you see something, uh, you perceive it, and uh, immediately it begins to be processed by your brain. But there's there's like a little lag between sort of the the receptors that are absorbing the new information and the receptors that are meant to kind of uh, interpret or catalog the information. And in that lag, if you sort of consciously ask your brain, have I seen this before? The, the sort of the wiring crosses, in other words. And so your brain tells you, yes, you have seen it before, like literally a split second ago. And so you get this feeling of deja vu, but in reality, it's your first experience. It's just that in the lag between the perception and the cataloging, you can disrupt it with this you know, conscious reflection of basically, did I see I it before? Which is why, the it. reason I'll tell you why this one kind of makes the most sense to me, but I don't know. But the, the reason this one makes the most sense to me is have you ever had this experience where you can actually prolong the deja vu? Has that ever happened to you? Where like you start to have deja vu yeah, then you're and then aware you of lean it. into it yeah, mm-hmm. and happens. then it just keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going until it finally it stops? I mean, I think it might be entirely plausible that it's like sliding doors starring uh, Gwyneth Paltrow where there's a constant <laughs> miniature time loops of like all the decisions we make. And there's there's another, you know, I'm gesturing now with my right hand and there's another universe where at that exact same time I gestured with my left hand and everything is exactly the same. So there's infinite, infinite, infinite branchings out and that maybe deja vu is some kind of like connection between those alternate realities. What do you think, wow. Amanda? I mean, that one's more fun. That one's more fun. way more fun than what I said. <laughs> Yeah, more bullshitty, but still. Yeah, it's it's. I think it's the um, uh, molecular uh, neuron firing uh, <laughs> encapsulation of the uh, neural net and the pause between the derivation. You know, but that makes sense, Reza. What you're saying because it's like I feel like there's no way that my friend had this experience with her coworkers where she was talking about gifting sauerkraut for Christmas. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's no way that that happened, right? So if everyone could pl- try an attempt to track down Amanda Elliott and send her sauerkraut uh, by the holidays, uh, let's make sure that she imbibes. And make sure you rush ship it, though, because that, that stuff goes bad, you know? It doesn't <laughs> go bad. That's the whole point. Yeah, it's just bad. It starts out bad. It's bad, but then you have to eat it within like a week or something because then it's like really, it goes bad. It's like kimchi. It's It's like kimchi. It just lasts forever. I can't help but feel like we've had this conversation before. See, I think we have. I know. I'm like, I feel like I think, you know, I think I've met you before. (laughs) Thanks so much, uh, Amanda. Oh my gosh. What an honor. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, folks, on another episode of Metaphysical Milkshake. If you want more, metaphysical milkshake more of life's big questions you can find us on uh, on our socials at Reza Aslan and at Rain Wilson we are on Twitter at Metamilk Podcast and Instagram at Metaphysical Milkshake let us know your life's big question who knows we just might explore them on a future episode we will see you all next week bye Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson Reza Aslan and Colin Thompson it's produced by Safa Samizadeh Yazd, Harris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. It is edited by Tyler Newbold and audio mixed by Joshua Harris. Original music is composed by Jeff Tang. Why am I doing the podcast with this guy? Why couldn't I be doing a podcast <laughs> with someone fun, you know, like Louis Anderson? What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland. For innovators everywhere, visit highland.com.